this very special podcast series on botanical Black history. This journey will be visiting the landscapes of Black America, presented by Black in the Garden in partnership with the Atlanta History Center. I am Cola B. Talkin, the host of the Black in the Garden podcast, here to be your virtual tour guide on this botanical Black history journey. And I'm supported by my friends from the Atlanta History Center. Shout out to the Cherokee Garden Library. We're getting there. Obviously, obviously, we're a bit partial to ATL, but the scope of this podcast series goes far beyond the home of the trap music, Delta, and lemon pepper wing enthusiasts, y'all. We are visiting the landscapes of Black America in this special four-part podcast series. We're gonna celebrate the influence of African and Black culture on past and present horticulture. And if you're anything like me, you know how necessary it is to celebrate Black history beyond February. On episode one, we're going to get familiar with me, your host, and the work that I've done to connect with our subject matter. You will be invited to optimize your listening experience by following along as we get introduced to the gardens and cultural landscapes of Black America, visual arts collection. We'll close with a highlight of joyous Black participation in plant cultivation. And throughout the series, we'll be emphasizing the resources that Atlanta History Center provides, such as their gardens and the Cherokee Garden Library. Throughout this series, we'll be emphasizing the resources that Atlanta History Center provides, such as their gardens and the Cherokee Garden Library. So take special note of that. This may be your first time hearing about the Atlanta History Center, so let me just catch you up. The Atlanta Historical Society was founded in 1926 to preserve and study Atlanta history. In 1990, after decades of collecting, researching, and publishing information about Atlanta and the surrounding area, the organization officially became the Atlanta History Center. What began as a small and archival-focused historical society grew over the decades to encompass what we now know as 33 acres of curated Guazetta Gardens, named after a Cuban native and Atlanta philanthropist and widow of a Coca-Cola chairman and CEO, Robert C. Guazetta. The Guazetta's legacy is another story for another time, but we couldn't get into Atlanta history without mentioning Coke. Obviously, obviously. Some folks may consider the History Center to be a museum mainly exhibiting indoors. Well, I was some folks until I went beyond the building, through and past all the exhibitions to the other side. And what I discovered was unexpected. It was an urban oasis that's part flower garden, part enchanting forest, and fully incredible. There's a farm with some very photogenic goats. and turkeys alongside various historic crops in the fields, including a replicated enslaved people's garden. Right quick, speaking of enslavement, in reference to the garden, I should mention that our exploration of Black landscapes will primarily celebrate the beauty of Black folks enjoying them, like we've been doing on the Black in the Garden podcast. But moving right along, visitors of Atlanta History Center enjoy varied programming, like summer camps, author talks, tours, and cultural celebrations. But of course, all relevant details that I mentioned can be found in the episode notes. As for me, well, let's just start with this. What does Black culture, white gnomes, 
green thumbs and a mic have in common? I'll tell you. It starts with the Black in the Garden podcast, which I started in 2019 because I wanted to create a podcast that celebrates Black culture and horticulture like never before in a relatable, entertaining way. And leading up to the launch, I was an avid podcast consumer. I was a gardening stand slash nerd and a former college radio host. So, you know, the skill sets were were adding up. I've always been hyper aware and proud of the significance of Black folks' incredibly varied contributions to the world in juxtaposition to the gaps present in the media coverage of our brilliance, unfortunately. But one day in 2018, on a routine visit to a local garden center, I turned the corner and I found an aisle that filled me with indignant rage. There was a row, and it was over 20 feet long, that was fully stocked with white garden gnomes. They were all the same hue, white, homogenous. <laughs> there were fairies too, and they were similarly homogenous. And that was evidence to me that my people were not considered by the gardening industry as consumers. And I already knew that our joyous participation in gardening was barely present when I looked at magazines or listened to podcasts or the things that I was seeing on TV, especially public television, no shade, but like for real, y'all. Basically all media, which will unpack why later in the episode, I knew I had the voice. I had the passion and I had the vision for a podcast. So that day, the seed was planted that would take over a year to germinate. Y'all, I was a little bit scared, but I persisted. What eventually blossomed from that seed was the Black in the Garden podcast. Hey, that's how we start every episode. Starting Black in the Garden, which eventually became Black in the Garden LLC, is how I fully and somewhat maybe even unwittingly stepped into entrepreneurship or more specifically plantrepreneurship, okay? That's the independent practice of operating a plant-centric business as defined by me. And I've coordinated two Halloween pumpkin compost drives in Atlanta. Shout out to the Wild Center. I've spoken at podcast and public gardens conferences. Last year, I even started a nonprofit organization, the Underground Arborist, which is on a mission to plant a tree in every state. Your girl be busy, okay? Since you're still with me, let's take a quick beat to go ahead and join my very inclusive Soil Cousin community at Black in the Garden on Instagram, my primary source of social media engagement. And be sure to say hello. There you can engage with us, catch up on what you've missed, and keep up with updates about what's next, especially for this series. I'll be sharing and discussing some of my favorite photos from the Cherokee Garden Library's new digital collection, which we'll be learning about as well on this episode. One series of particular note that you'll find on my Instagram is Botanical Black History, which I started in 2022. My vision started with the series of creative vignettes that shared remarkable and unfortunately obscure facts about botanical Black history figures. And it was well-received for that reason. So much so that I was invited to discuss it with the likes of Duke University via Sarah P. Duke Gardens, as well as Chicago's Garfield Park Conservatory. After a few months, when I assessed how much effort went into the ideation and research, 
for such valuable content, I knew it was time to get some sponsorship. I sought out sponsorship to compensate me for my efforts. And it just wasn't lost on me that the pursuit of illuminating the work of those whose stories that I celebrated was worth compensation. I mean, Black creative entrepreneurs deserve at least that much, period. Fortunately, my timing aligned with the Atlanta History Center because their Cherokee Garden Library, which we're going to learn more about that as well, was in the process of archiving and debuting the visual arts materials that showcase gardens and cultural landscapes of Black America. What luck. Shout out to Stacey Catron and Melanie Watson for seeing my vision and imagining with me what a collaboration would look like. Because what you're listening to is a manifestation of that. For a richer experience of the rest of this episode, I encourage you, if your hands are free, you're invited to expand the show notes. Get into the show notes. I mean, as podcast listeners, we be taking that for granted. But really, there's effort that goes into it. And there's resources that will enhance your experience. So expand those show notes on this episode and tap the link to view the digital collection. The photos are like glossy pictures in the center of a book. You know, you know, when you get a book, <laughs> when you get the, the book, like a, someone's biography or something, and it has those glossy pictures like right in the middle. That's what this digital collection is like as the subject of this series they're literally the best visual reference. And if you can't look right now, it's fine. Just make a note to view it when you get some time. We really want everyone who hears this podcast to engage with the collection. Now let's talk about the Cherokee Garden Library. Okay, so if you are a garden nerd or just someone who wants to learn more about like landscaping design or garden history, Part of the reason why we're here, of course, horticulture, botanical art, cultural landscapes, plant ecology, natural landscapes, gardening, obviously. If you're someone who's interested in those types of things, then the Cherokee Garden Library or your local garden library, if you can't make it to Atlanta, because I understand it's a very specific place. Now, the Cherokee Garden Library houses over four centuries of information, 34,000 books, plus photographs, manuscript, manuscripts, I know words, <laughs> landscape drawings are included in the Cherokee Garden Library collection. These rare and valuable resources tell the story of horticulture and botanical history in the Southeastern United States and areas of influence throughout the world. For those following along while listening, you'll see images of residential gardens, landscapes, farms, educational institutions, green spaces, parks, both urban and rural, that were created and used by Black Americans from as early as the late 19th century, going forward just over 100 years into the 1990s, which is like the not-so-distant, but quite-distant past. I don't know. That's Millennials have an interesting concept of time, but that's not the point. These images show details such as garden and campus design, plant choices, farming methods, and land use, as well as social and economic conditions in Black communities. And they really inspired me to consider how the way we engage with plants can be an indicator of class. But that's for another episode. 
So the Gardens and Cultural Landscapes of Black America is a visual arts materials collection, which I guess you could say is a fancy way of indicating that it's a resource of the Cherokee Garden Library that is, like I said, it's like a photo album. In large, it's part of the Keenan Research Center at the Atlanta History Center. The collection contains almost 400 black and white and color photographic prints, stereographs, photographs, and glass slides, all of which have been digitized so that they could be available on the database. Viewing the mostly sepia, do y'all say sepia or sepia? Tomato, tomato. But viewing the mostly sepia or black and white images as a Black American feels like exploring a lost family album full of unknown relatives from different places and times. <sighs> it's it's very endearing. Dr. D.L. Henderson, who is a lifelong Black history enthusiast and renowned historian and Acquisitions Committee co-chair, whose memories go back to some decades beyond my own, mused that Scrolling through the images in the Cherokee Garden Library's newest collection is like paging through my own family's cherished photo albums. The southern yards and gardens of my childhood, crops on my grandparents' farm, and the segregated parks, benches, and landscapes that we visited for recreation, they're all represented in this collection. Dr. D.L. goes on to say, that though the collection is geographically broad, echoes of Southern landscapes resonate through images representing various regions of the United States. Known locations include Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, New Jersey, Mississippi, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Texas, Tennessee, and Virginia, okay? We're kind of working mainly with like a Southeast, East Coast region, but all relevant to the grand scheme of the American culture, which, as we understand, began in the Southeast anyway. So when I say a lost family album full of unknown relatives, I'm referring to how most of the residential images in particular include mostly unidentified individuals and locations. It's important to note that the way these source materials are acquired lends to the mystery of it all. For those who have actually touched an old family album, like close your eyes and just go there with me. You're sitting on the couch or on the armchair, maybe smelling mothballs. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> And you're touching the old family album, right? You know how photos don't usually get labeled because the keeper of the album usually provides an oral history as part of the album experience as we're still closing our eyes, we're going through that album. You hear that crinkly, like, protective cover as we're turning the pages. Maybe you're sipping some sweet tea. I don't know your life. But as you're going through that album you understand that you're being given an oral history as part of that album experience. And you very likely haven't considered the possibility of what it would be like for the album that you're engaging with to possibly be viewed in archives by strangers, you know, like decades or even centuries into the future. It's interesting how we have a view of, not a view, 
as much as how we don't really consider what our position is in time, especially in reference to the things that we may leave behind and how people in the future would engage with them as historical artifacts. So for the sake of how we're viewing this collection, here we are in the future. And some photos may be from actual uh, family albums, but others have been sourced from places such as postcards, newspaper clippings, and commercial publications. And were very thoughtfully curated by a very thoughtful committee. And there was certainly a very thoughtful process because the committee was not playing about the integrity of the photos that they selected, meaning that they prioritized selecting photos that appeared to be not staged or manipulated by the creators who were likely not Black Americans. You know what it's like when, or hopefully you wouldn't know what it's like to have your image be portrayed in a certain way by someone who is outside of your culture that may have a particular agenda. Does that make sense? So they wanted to make sure that the photos were not manipulated by creators who were likely not Black Americans, because these are Black American subjects that are in the photographs. And they looked for cues that indicated historical accuracy and cultural significance, and they scrutinized the possible relationship between the photographers and their subjects. And it's important to shout out to the archivists and the uh, folks who do the good work of preservation in museums and just, you know, in life in general, because those people are a big part of the reason why we have collections like this, those kind of people. So I want to give a special shout out to those involved in archival and preservation work, okay? So it was understood that photos which appeared to be taken by outsiders, I'm using air quotes, would express a negative bias as they sought to represent a nostalgic past a la the good old days. Not so good, but... We can't speak on negative biases without mentioning the consideration that went into the depiction of Black folks laboring in cotton fields. It's common understanding that my people's emotional triggers around cotton cultivation are sensitive and entirely justified. I mean, if cotton was central to your ancestors being trafficked and brutalized, then you would bristle at the sight of cotton picking too. With respect to visually representing the range of the Black experience in the American landscape, there is a representative sampling of workers in cotton fields, though. So another kind of imagery of sensitive nature includes funeral images. Although used very sparingly, they represent the cultural relevance of plants and floral arrangements used for wakes and funerals of their time. And on the more joyful end of the spectrum, you'll find some images of Black children at play in the collection, reasonably, very reasonably showing a range of Black Americans' experiences in their respective environments. Now, you very well could recognize your great uncle Johnny or your cousin Henrietta, maybe Mr. Rufus's Rosebush or Auntie Laverne's backyard in the album. So you're invited to assist us with identifying people, places, and plants within these images. Yes, it is open for interpretation. You know, we're talking about a museum, for goodness sake. 
You can check the show notes for details on how you can reach out and give us your feedback. You know where you'd be unlikely to see Cousin Henrietta's floristry skills or Uncle Leroy's prize-winning squash? In the 1859 inaugural issue of Philadelphia Gardeners Monthly, or in the pages of Garden and Forest, a journal of horticulture, landscape, art, and forestry, which was first published in 1888. Both of these publications were established by white men for the use and enjoyment of white audiences, both before enslaved Black Americans were officially emancipated and during Reconstruction, just in that time frame, for reasons that we already understand regarding the overall economic circumstances of Blacks during Reconstruction and after, there would be no reason to expect that the aforementioned publications would emphasize or even acknowledge Black representation. We're getting into the representation of it all now. Was there Black media at that time? Yes, there was Black media at that time, but I would say it was limited. The first Black newspaper, which was a literal sheet, it wasn't the newspaper... Don't don't think of it as the modern day kind of big bunch of pages newspaper that we know today. The first black paper with news on it. And no, I'm just playing. The first black newspaper actually precedented the first gardening periodicals. Interestingly enough, in 1827, Samuel E. Cornish and John B. Russworm printed Freedom's Journal. And it was a forerunner to Frederick Douglass's 1846 North Star paper, which focused on abolition and things, because we all know or should know that our good brethren, ancestor Frederick Douglass, was a very famous abolitionist. In PBS's film, Soldiers Without Swords, which is about the Black press, Phyllis Garland, who is the first Black and first female tenured professor at Columbia's journalism school, said the Black press was never intended to be objective because it didn't see the white press being objective. It often took a position. It had an attitude. This was a press of advocacy. There was news, but the news had an admitted and a deliberate slant, end quote. During the early days of Black media, the priority and the call to action was freedom first and then every manner of rallying for social justice. That was the subject matter. Like, that was the point. How are we focusing on anything else if we don't have our freedom, right? It reminds me of a meme that I saw recently that showed photos of of Frederick Douglass indicating that he was never photographed smiling. And it was followed by the assertion that there wasn't funny. It was hard to be a Black man or Black person anywhere during the era that I'm referring to, whether you were already manumitted, which is a fancy word for freed from slavery, or even an affluent Black person, it was just hard to be Black in these times. On the subject of affluent Black people who may have had more leisure time for hobbies and pleasure gardening or access to cameras or photographers, these were the Black upper class who would be most likely to be represented in media because of their ability to model for the lower class Blacks the behavior that whites deemed appropriate and respectable. You know, respectability politics. Black upper class 
due to segregation and rejection from existing white garden clubs, would also be most likely to organize their own clubs and participate in historic Black garden clubs, such as one of the first known, we're going to mention two today, uh, one of the first known Black garden clubs, the farthest back that we can go is 1927, with the beginning of Big Lick Garden Club. I love that name so much. (laughs) Was started in 1927 by Ethel Early and the Garden Club of Philadelphia and Vicinity was started in 1939. These are two of the earliest known historic Black garden clubs. Shout out to them. Coverage of Black Garden Club's community beautification projects was covered in local publications such as the Norfolk Journal and Guide. It's worth noting that the Big Lit Garden Club's impact in resulting media coverage was a likely contributing factor that led to collaboration with the White Garden Clubs that could have welcomed them in in the first place. Mm-hmm. Imagine a shared love of gardening, fostering not only a thriving ecosystem, but an environment of social equality. Like truly, like just close your eyes and hold on to that. As I researched and wrote this episode, I recognized what it takes to explore botanical black history as the storied niche that it is, that is not documented well enough. In a world where white supremacy significantly affects centuries of historical documentation of the Black experience, it really takes patience, some creative fact sourcing, lots of comparative analysis, and access to as many resources as possible, and even the dash of luck. While it's unfortunate to know, there is still a lot of uncovered primary resources like oral histories and heirlooms supporting the preservation of the botanical aspect of Black American history as it relates to our culture, I am grateful to know that our stories are still being discovered, resulting in timelines being updated for chronological accuracy. Y'all, I had to create a whole timeline for this just, just so I could stay on point because everything that was happening in the world, in the country, in Atlanta, as I'm zooming in and out and trying to be as accurate as possible, but also leaving some space because we understand, like I said, there's still so much more, but we're going to talk a little bit more about that. I must emphasize the opportunity to stay curious and continue the conversation while we locate botanical Black history in our obscured because I will not claim it as lost, history. Though Black American media began in the early 19th century with a primary emphasis on slave narratives and abolitionist speeches while facing great risks, very great risks, associated with running such enterprises, imagine not being free and subject to all manner of brutalization and the likes while still not only verbally rallying for your freedom, but also creating an entire space and literature that was advocating for your freedom that you also distributed (laughs) 
to other people. I can imagine there was danger in even being caught with these publications. I have so much respect for those founding fathers of Black media for having the audacity that they did. So while the beginning of Black media primarily emphasized slave narratives and abolitionist speeches, contemporary Black media's proliferation, fortunately, is apparent. In Atlanta, the Cherokee Garden Library's resources, as I mentioned at the top, encompass four centuries of knowledge. And that has assisted me greatly with the challenge of researching a topic like this while also being an oasis for my horticulturally curious mind. I mean, you ever, I know it's not just me that falls down that rabbit hole while you're trying to do research. Imagine being a garden enthusiast slash nerd in a whole big old room full of botanical books and artifacts and archives, the likes, just 34, over 34,000 resources that can be found in the Cherokee Garden Library. And in turning and, and going through the various types of artifacts and literature that you can find there, not only are you finding answers, <laughs> but you're also kind of, or I'll speak for myself, but I was also unearthing new questions. So it just adds to the richness of where we'll be going with this series. And you're invited to dig deeper. So pull up to the Cherokee Garden Library. You know all about it now. And I want to challenge you to discover more for yourself. If you're able to get to the Cherokee Garden Library at Atlanta History Center, of course, my interest here is to draw you into the Cherokee Garden Library. So by all means, if you can, get there. And this is as much of a history telling as well as a reawakening of such conversations that really need to happen as horticulture is merging, will be merging, if I have my way, into the larger conversations in Black culture as it relates directly to social justice, wellness, leisure, economic advancement, etc., and our ability to thrive beyond merely surviving. So here we are wrapping up this episode. And I want you to stay tuned for more details that are coming up soon about the next episode in this series. Make sure you look into those resources that I've listed in the episode notes. If you have questions, we love questions, comments and criticisms, please be nice. They should be directed to hello at blkinthegarden.com. Any other resources, contact information, whatever you need that is tangible, that'll be in the episode notes as well. I'm so glad that we got to have this experience. I appreciate you for your curiosity, your interest. We want you to definitely share this if it has piqued your interest. If you're excited about it, like we are, definitely share this out right now. Like if you got your phone in your hand, go ahead and send a link to a friend, family member, fellow gardening, cultural and ethnobotany enthusiast. We didn't get into that word, but this is absolutely a case study on ethnobotany. So I'm so excited that we got to 
get started on this journey with our first episode presented by Black in the Garden in collaboration with the Atlanta History Center as we've been exploring botanical Black history and visiting the landscapes of Black America. I'm your host, Cola B. Talkin', and I want to wish you love, light, and soil. Mm-hmm.